Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. And a shout out of congratulations to my hometown nationals for their historic World Series win. Woo-woo! All right. Well, we begin today with an interview I've been wanting to do for a while. I want to be very clear. Yes. Not picking signs. You mean you never, but you I never get to see your name on a sign. Thank you. In big letters. In big letters. That says yeah. Amy 2020, okay, Amy for America. Yeah, there are no part. Amys. That's Amy Klobuchar, United States Senator from Minnesota. And I'm a candidate for President of the United States. Klobuchar announced her run back in February, but she's only recently begun to get more attention after a strong performance in the October debate. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. I sat down with Senator Klobuchar earlier this week to talk about her candidacy, but she actually asked me the first question, and it was a softball. Literally. So are you ready for the softball game? Yeah, we're definitely working hard. Senator Klobuchar is the color commentator every year for the Congressional Women's Softball Game. Welcome to the 10th annual Congressional Women's Softball Game between women members of Congress and women of the D.C. press corps. But I was always curious why she wasn't out on the field. You're a good color commentator. I don't mean to yeah. dismiss your skill there. Mm-hmm. But why are you not on the field? Oh, because I have never been that great of a softball player. In fourth grade, I had the second to the worst softball throw in the president's Aww. physical fitness class in my fourth grade <laughs> class. And the worst one was Gretchen Johnson, but who's counting? All right, then we got down to business and Klobuchar started with a different kind of pitch. I have won every single red and purple congressional district three times. And I have won the rural districts that border Iowa and South and North Dakota that Donald Trump won. And I also won Michelle Bachman's district. I won in the northern district that is like where all the steelworkers are, um, where Donald Trump won by significant numbers. And so that's because I bring people with me. And so I think I have that track record plus now and the momentum that we're seeing. We just had a new poll out in New Hampshire where I'm up to number five there. And uh, without coming in with a lot of name ID, especially in New Hampshire. Um, and I think this is my moment. To, people have to get to know me, and then they can decide. Given all of that you just went through about all the success that you've had and how much Democrats, Democratic voters want to see somebody who can win in those kind of places, why hasn't that automatically propelled you up Because higher? people don't really know me, not all of them, maybe half of them now. And, um, and this is the same thing was with Jimmy Carter. The same thing happened to Bill Clinton. Um, people start sometimes at the behind in the pack. I wasn't behind. I was I always like to joke that I was beat out 18 people right away. Um, but um, they need to get to know you. So that's what this process is for me. And that's why all of these going on the bus tour and visiting all the these Trump counties that we had won with Obama. Uh, was so key to what I'm saying. And then in New Hampshire, doing 10 counties in 30 hours with three hours in sleep the day after the debate. Um, was that I a good just idea? pushing. Uh, yes, it was. 30 hours it was, straight. Did okay. you need to do 30 there hours There was straight? a nor'easter. Oh, that was the problem. Got it. And it was, it was a big rainstorm, but people still came. It was a huge crowd. So that's what I'm doing. I'm getting out there in this um, old-fashioned way, and I think we need to do more of that, as well as 
um, get my name out there on the internet. We've run some really good ads lately in those states that I think have been helpful. And we raised over $2 million in just six days after the debate. Um, and so that allows us to get me out there. And I mean, I wasn't running for president my whole life. I wasn't running for president even the last five years. I had a win in a purple state. And I think that should be a value that you can win in those states. Some of my colleagues ran before. They have huge name ID. One's a former vice president. Bernie ran before. Uh, Elizabeth uh, has been clearly out there for a number of years now, showing some intention she's going to run. And so it's just a very, it's a very different situation. And, but that doesn't mean that you don't win the way I'm winning. Do you need then to, for Joe Biden to fail in order for you to succeed? Oh, I don't know about that. I, all I know is I want to be the only one left standing. So I guess everyone would Everybody have to leave have to, to make that. that happen. So I, but do you I buy wouldn't this, pick out one person. Do you buy that there's, there, are, there is this sort of more progressive, liberal, what I would say the structural change lane, people who are saying we need to make big, bold, structural moves, Sanders, Warren, and then they're the folks you would be in this category talking about change, but in a less dramatic way. Uh, I just, I don't view it that way because I, I view my ideas as bold. And so I wouldn't use that character. I, do we have differences? Yeah. Yes. I view them as bold, taking on climate change in a big way and going to carbon neutral by 2050 and doing all these things we're going to be able to do even in the first week, climate change agreement, um, the gas mileage standards, which is a huge problem with Trump, the clean power rules, the sweeping legislation with some kind of carbon pricing. That's bold. We haven't done anything except energy efficiency. And then, of course, states have done some work and universities and businesses, but not the federal government. So that's the first thing. I think it's bold to say you're going to get immigration reform done in a year when no one has, has succeeded. I am sure I can do it because I know where those Republican votes are. Um, I think it's bold to be the first president taking on addiction and mental health in a big way. There have been presidents that have done things about it, that have talked about it, even some personal experiences and stories. Uh, but I've pledged to really take this on in a big way. Um, and I think it's bold to take on the pharma companies like I've been doing from the beginning. So I just don't buy that narrative. I don't think anyone has a monopoly on good ideas. There are clearly differences in the kind of bills we support, and I don't think we should shy away from them. Well, th speaking about climate and carbon neutral, can you do that without having a ban on fracking? Uh, yeah, that is because I view I view the um, I view natural gas as the transition fuel. I don't know where we will end up in the end. I just don't think we should put an immediate ban on fracking. No, because it's better than having oil right now. Um, natural gas is. Uh, and it is a transitional fuel. It was only a few years ago we were celebrating, you know, that we had yeah, so natural gas buses that the right. Obama administration touted with their transportation secretary. So I think we have to we have to remember that it's a transitional fuel and then move very quickly to the grid and to more electric cars and to do and to being smart about having a renewable electricity standard. So what it is, what the goal is, is the numbers. And then there's many ways to get there. But we're not going to get there all the way unless we don't put a lot in research and technology and have some kind of a carbon tax. And it could be a carbon tax. You can do it with cap and trade, or you can do it with a renewable fuel standard but what, uh, across the country, renewable electricity standard. But whatever you do, 
you've got to make sure that the people that are hurt by it, if their heating bills go up, gas bills go up, that they get that money from that pricing. What is the biggest disconnect, you think, between what you're hearing from voters, you're out there on your bus and your 30-hour straight swing tour, and the kinds of questions that people like me are asking you or that you get asked on the debate stage? Mm. Well, I think that they are asking much more about some of these bread and butter issues like long-term care. We are having an aging of our senior population. I called it the silver tsunami, and then AARP told me that was too mean. So I call it mean. Yeah. So I call it the senior surge. Okay. Because you know you don't want to have it be the silver. I'm sorry, the silver surge. Yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. Okay. I mentioned mental health. One in five Americans have mental health problems sometime in their life. Addiction. One in two Americans are touched by it in some way. So those are things they bring up. Interestingly enough, I've had this happen once, so it's not really fair. But I was in Berlin, New Hampshire which has had a town with a lot of closed down mills. And so we talked about all that. And then it went kind of off the rails in a good way. Everyone was talking about how the impeachment proceeding worked. And it was just two oh, weeks like ago. How, how, how it yeah, actually were, technically were worked? Like real questions. They were trying to figure it out. They were talking to each other. And then I go, well, you know, it's like that law and order show, but it's not criminal. Mm-hmm. The first half, they get the evidence and the second half. And it was a really good discussion. And it weirdly just renewed my faith in, because they're just is citizens, I promise. We're grappling with how it works. Some were Republicans, some were independents, some were Democrats. It was a mixed group, but it wasn't like a gotcha question. They were trying to figure it out with each other. Do you worry that, though, that the focus on impeachment and what is potentially a long process of impeachment takes away an ability for you to make a broader bread and butter message? Mm. No, because I think that it's part of the same. I mean, my message is a little different than some of my colleagues. Um, I've been constructively showing how we could make things better economically. But I've also, from the moment I announced in the middle of that blizzard with four inches of snow on my head that wasn't supposed to happen, um, in the middle of the Mississippi River, my point for picking that place was that we need to bridge the river of our divides to get to a higher plane. Um, I actually said in the announcement that we need to look up and look at each other. And this is, of course, Donald Trump was bad at that point, but he's escalated even more. I also conjured up the image of our community um, when that bridge had collapsed just a year, uh, just a mile from where I was, about how my lasting memories of that were the off-duty firefighter tethering herself to the side of the river, diving in and out looking for survivors. She just happened to be there. The tasty truck driver who could have saved his life by ramming in the back of a school bus of kids, but veered off and burned to death in his cab and saved the bus. The bus that plummeted down 30 feet and was hanging on a guardrail, school camp counselor, Uh, Hernandez, young guy, has this moment when the doors open, is he going to run off himself? Because it looks like it's going over. He gets every kid off for safety. That's our country. And just, I just believe in my heart, uh, as we learned Elijah Cummings always loved to say, we're better than this. At his funeral, people kept noting that, that he would say, we're so much better than this. And so that was, that's my message. And I think that, um, the impeachment piece of it, yes, it dominates TV with all the legalities. You know, as it should, it's a big deal. Um, but fundamentally, I think Americans can step back. Most of them have read parts or heard about parts of that transcript or the partial transcript um, where they see a president, you know, going to a foreign leader. And instead of talking about 
things you should talk about with foreign leaders about another country invading our elections or something. He chooses to talk about getting dirt on a political opponent. They know what that is. So that's why I see, I, I see it as fitting in with the pattern of his behavior, always putting something else in front of the country. Can I go back to something you said about, something you said about we're better than this? It seems to me that was the message that Hillary Clinton was also putting forward and that theme of love Trump's hate and all of that. And there were a lot of Democrats after that election who said, you know what, that's nice and everything, but obviously that's not enough. So is it enough to just have a message that says we're better than no, this? No, 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 okay. I'm just saying. I was, it was yeah, yeah. on my mind because yeah, yeah, of yeah. Elijah. But I think that means more than just about Trump going after people of color and immigrants, which is horrific. I think it's also about economics. Um, I think it's also about how we're dealing with the rest of the world. Um, and, and when you look at um, you know what he did with that tax bill, and then he goes down to Mar-a-Lago and says, hey, I just made you a lot richer. You could say we're better than this about that, too. So I'm not just talking about his meanness and his mean tweets and everything he does. I'm actually talking about patriotism and what it means which includes economic patriotism, making sure that, in Paul Wellstone's words, we all do better when we all do better. Um, so I think there is something more there. And then you also have just people's own self-interest. It's not in the best interest of the farmers to have a guy that's in this trade war and isn't really resolving it in a big way and has basically sold out to the oil companies over biofuels. That's not in their best interest in the middle of Iowa or Minnesota or Missouri. Um, and it's not in the best interest of um, the citizens of this country when you got a guy that's not really working on bringing their drug prices down. You can go through the economic issues pretty clearly. Um, and I do think we lost that in the last election. I've been the first to say it all the time. I, I think we lost that. And we shouldn't have because he is someone that is pure Donald Trump selfish. He puts himself first. Senator Amy Klobuchar and I talked a lot about her presidential candidacy, but I also wanted to ask her about something she's been focused on in the Senate, lowering the cost of prescription drugs. Pharma. Uh, there are two lobbyists for every member of Congress. Two lobbyists for every member of Congress. And they think they own Washington. They probably do. And as I've said for many years, they don't own me. And that is uh, as evident by the fact that I've been leading these bills since I got to Washington. I've been very disappointed. I was disappointed that it didn't get in the Affordable Care Act. Um, and then, of course, now uh, when President Trump ran, he claimed that he was going to bring drug prices down so far that your head would spin. He said that on Fox. Well, it's been the opposite. They keep going up. Insulin um, over the last 10 years or so, three times of what it was, um, and you've just seen this throughout time. I think the answer is really obvious, and that is that we need to bring the cost down. And one way we do it, one big, big way, is with negotiations under Medicare. 43 million seniors, that's a big bargaining power, and yet they're locked in. There's a law on the books that says they can't negotiate, that Medicare can't negotiate, whereas Medicaid and the VA can. Right. Um, so I have the bill, lead the bill with 34 senators to lift that ban. Bringing in less expensive drugs uh, from other countries. Um, that's something that I've led with um, Senator first McCain and now Senator Grassley. And so we got 14 Republican votes for an amendment on that a few years ago. So I just think that is actually something you can get done. And here's the great news. A president can do it herself. You can get a waiver to bring in less expensive drugs without even passing a bill. 
stopping pay for delay, where the big pharma companies pay off the generics to keep their products off the market. And then the bill that's coming through the House, uh, which is to put some caps on prices based on the international prices. There are so many things we can do, but people have to have the will to take on pharma. I do. And as president, I can get it done. And the public is with me. This is one of those, as you know, great examples where we can bring people with us, not just a fired up Democratic base, but Republicans and independents. But you do, as to your point, there is bipartisan support. The House bill, not as much, but in the Senate, there and was, yet there's yeah, right? there was there was for bit. the bringing less expensive drugs. Yeah. There was 14 votes, but it wasn't enough to put it over. There were more Democrats voting for it. So in that sense, it seems unlikely that much can get done through a traditional legislative path. Mm, I, I think on some of these big ticket items. So let's say we win, yeah, and which we will, the presidency. And if we win big, if I'm in heading up the ticket, then we will win the U.S. Senate. So then we can get a lot done legislatively. If we are don't win the U.S. Senate, which I'm not going to even consider will happen, you know, then it's harder. But there are still issues that we can get done with the new president. And do you think, though, that part of the frustration for voters about the fact that politicians keep talking about lowering the cost of prescription drugs. I think every candidate, Democrat or Republican, has said they're going to do this and that it hasn't resulted in anything does lead them to support something like a Medicare fraud. Why not get rid of the entire system? If the system is this broken and pharma is so powerful, well, let's just blow it all up and then make then we won't have these yeah. problems. So I, I understand that sentiment, but I want to actually get things done that'll make a difference. And actually, when you look at some of the pharmaceutical prices in other countries, they're all, they have all kinds of healthcare system. It is not related to single payer that all the other countries have lower prices. Some have that, some don't, some have private, some have a mixture. Um, but what is remarkable about the U.S. is that we're producing all these drugs, and yet we have some of the highest prices in the world. Um, it makes no sense at all. It's American money, taxpayer money even, that went into a lot of the research for them. So that's how I explain it. And not everyone's on Medicare for all anyway of the public. Like, they get that this could be a problem. Uh, 149 million Americans would lose their current insurance in uh, four years. That's what the bill says on page eight. So I think that um, this is an independent issue. And this is where I joined forces with Bernie. Uh, Bernie and I actually led the amendment. It was Klobuchar Sanders uh, for bringing in less expensive drugs from other countries. We've worked together on other issues related to this. Uh, we He asked me to do a CNN debate to pair up with him against two Republicans. Um, and this was one of the, the issues that we raised. So, you know, I don't I think that there's a lot that unites us and our party on this. And there are a number of Republicans that want to come with us. We just need a president that actually doesn't just talk the talk, but makes it the issue. So in 2018, Democrats ran almost consistently on the health care issue on pre-existing pre conditions. conditions, right? It was protect Obamacare, protect the pre-existing conditions. Which really bore out to be true based on the fact that Trump then filed a lawsuit, which is pending, uh, to basically get rid of the protection on pre-existing conditions. We weren't making it up. How did Democrats go from making the focus on pre-existing conditions protecting Obamacare to Medicare for all now being a litmus test. Yeah, you know what? You should ask some of my colleagues because 
I um, actually think we should build on the Affordable Care Act. And you saw just recently, despite the Trump administration sabotage, which has been extensive, um, and despite some of the Republican governors not even accepting the Medicaid money, which could help their states, um, you still have um, some decreased rates going on with Affordable Care Act. But I think we could do better. We do better by bringing down the cost of pharmaceuticals, not just for the individual consumer, but for the government, uh, by having this more competition. And then you also do better with the public option, something uh, President Obama wanted to do from the beginning. And you could do it with Medicaid or Medicare, but it's basically think about it as a nonprofit option to compete with these insurance companies. And then people can buy into it. Um, and not only do they get a better deal, I think it will bring down, and there's some studies showing this, bring down costs overall, and it'll cover a lot more people, I think 12 million more people, and bring down the cost for 13 million people. So that's where I am. Senator Klobuchar, thank you so much. Okay. Oh, wait, is it? Yeah. I hear people introducing you in a million different ways. No, no, is that's it okay. char? It's char. Both. My mom what said do you like to char, say? and my dad said Klobuchar. What do you and say? And so I say Klobuchar, because mm -hmm. it's easier to say, honestly, so I've always said that. Um, there is a strain of Klobuchars up in Ely, where my dad was born, who say Klobuchar. And every time I am in a parade up there, there's about 10 of them. And they yell, say your name right, it's Klobuchar. And then I yell, just be happy I'm there. How many other Slovenian senators are there? <laughs> Amy Klobuchar is United States Senator from Minnesota and a presidential candidate. For so many black people, The Wiz feels like home. like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you ask Americans to rank the issues they want Washington to work on, healthcare always sits very high on this list. But getting consensus on what that means, well, that's a lot harder. For some, it means greater access. Others want to focus on costs, while others think it means a new healthcare delivery system like Medicare for All. But one thing that voters, regardless of party, have agreed on is that the cost of prescription drugs in this country is way too high. Americans spend significantly more on prescription drugs when compared to any other country. But why? I sat down with Sarah Cliff, health policy and investigative reporter at The New York Times, and one of the leading healthcare policy reporters to figure out why we've been hearing about reforming prescription drug prices for years, but with very little progress. I think the reason nothing has been done is that the drug companies have a really good deal in the United States right now, and they would be up in arms about the possibility of losing the good deal and the profits they're able to make in the United States. When you look across the healthcare sector, drug companies generally have much higher margins than hospitals, than insurers. They're doing really, really well because of the rules we've set up in the United States. Let's get to the sort of fundamental issue here, which you have raised. This was when you wrote for Vox. And your header on this topic was the central dilemma in drug pricing is should we trade off 
some innovation for some access. We here in the United States, we've made a pretty unique policy decision to let drug companies charge whatever they want for their products. Other countries have looked at pharmaceuticals and said, this should be more like a utility. This should be like water or electricity. We are going to regulate the prices that pharmaceutical companies can charge in our countries. You know, if a pharmaceutical company isn't willing to come to an agreement with a country, the patients there, you know, might not have access to those drugs. You see this discussion happen a lot in the United Kingdom, where there's constantly debates about new chemotherapy drugs and whether they're worth the prices pharma is asking. We're, we're talking about a trade-off between access and innovation. When you have a lot of money to be made in the United States, you have a lot of people who want to invest in pharmaceuticals, who want to put money towards researching new cures, because the profits you could make in the mm. United States are just wildly high. If we were to become like other countries, if we were to negotiate our drug prices, as some legislators would like to see us do, there would be less profit to be made in the drug industry. So if you're an investor looking at all the things you can invest in, you might not invest in pharmaceutical. You might invest in like a new app or, you know, some other thing where you could make a lot of money. Is the legislation that we're seeing now kind of make its way through Congress, tries to get sort of nibble around the edges on the issue of Medicare, if not negotiating, at least setting some prices. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's any hope for anything like that passing? I'd say generally, no. When you look back at this track record, I think what's interesting and different this time is um, President Trump has seemed weirdly, generally you have um, a divide where Democrats want Medicare to negotiate drug prices, Republicans say, no, that's too much government involvement, we're going to let the free market sort out what the right prices are. But Trump has been a kind of interesting character in this, where I remember um, even before he was inaugurated, he was giving some press conferences where he's talking about how he's a businessman and Medicare, you know, is going to get tough and they're going to get good prices. And it was like, that's something you hear a little more from Democrats. Um, President Trump, through his health secretary, Alex Azar, has been raising this issue of why are drug prices so much more expensive here than across other countries? And again, that's traditionally something you'd hear from like, Bernie Sanders, not from, you know, a Republican president. But I, it sort of adds up for Trump, where he kind of looks out at the world and thinks, look, they're all freeloading on American innovation. We're paying so much so they can all get mm. great drugs. They issued a report, you know, earlier this year looking at the prices Americans pay compared to prices in other countries. Um, you know, what they don't mention is most of those other countries all have some kind of price controls. For folks who are listening now, what can you tell them about the reality, you think, as we go forward of any sort of reduction or relief in the cost of drugs? Or are we just basically, this is the system we have, mm -hmm. and unless or until we make those major, major changes to it, it's not likely we're going to see much. Unfortunately, that kind of seems like the outlook to me right now. And what I think will eventually change things is, again, I go back to this rise in deductibles, which I think is really, really important to understanding the politics of American healthcare right now, where we are all, you know, through our deductibles, through our co-payments, we're all being asked to spend more and more and more on our own healthcare. So you look at a drug like insulin, for example, which has become a key focal point mm. in this debate. And this is one where that innovation access trade-off doesn't really apply. This is a case of we've had a drug around for ages. Or if you think to um, Martin Sheckrally jacking up the price 
of a generic drug that, again, he, he didn't really do anything to innovate on. His innovation was just charging a ton of money for a generic drug. Um, you know, those are cases where you have generic manufacturers, manufacturers of drugs have been around for a while, kind of free riding on, you know, the fact that America is going to pay anything for the drugs on the market. So I think of something like the issue of insulin, where we already see reports of people literally dying due to lack of insulin or, you know, going into massive debt. You know, it's a constant worry. I think this collision between Americans being asked to pay for more of their own health care and not being able to afford it, I think that's eventually what will drive some kind of change. I think there'll be a few news stories. When I think back to the Affordable Care Act, we really got that over the finish line. We're just like more and more stories of Americans in terrible situations, dying, going into bankruptcy because they didn't have health insurance. And I think that is probably the life cycle of this story. But I don't know when it when it happens. And, you know, it, it requires Washington stepping up against pharma, which that's a hard thing to get them to do. It's pharma, but also health insurance companies. You're mm-hmm. saying that both of those things need to happen at the same time. If it's about the deductibles, it needs to be pharma, health insurance companies together. I think it mostly has to be the pharmaceutical companies. I think, mm. I mean, one way you could go about it is saying, look, these deductibles are too high, regulating the insurers saying you have to cover more. That's just going to embolden pharma in a way, right? If we say you have to pay what pharma wants them wants right. you to They'll pay. They'll say, well, Great. We'll make yeah, these exactly. as expensive as we can. Um, and so I think it's really more about, um, in some ways, health insurers would love to have the government help them negotiate drug prices because, you know, right now, pharmaceuticals have a lot more leverage mm-hmm. in these negotiations. So if they had a lot of things you see in other parts of healthcare is um, with hospitals, for example, is hospitals often use Medicare as a benchmark. They say, okay, Medicare is paying this much for a knee replacement, and that kind of ends up guiding the private insurance prices. There's no version of that in prescription drugs because Mm. there's no negotiation in prescription drug prices. Hmm. Well, Sarah Cliff, thank you for walking us through all of this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Sarah Cliff is health policy and investigative reporter at The New York Times. Millions of Americans rely on prescription drugs. Some 40% of Americans say they take at least one prescription drug every month. But the high cost of these drugs have forced many to decide what they'll give up in order to pay for them, or they're forced to ration their medicine. The fact that some people will die or suffer because they can't afford their medication in 2019 is almost hard to believe. Here's what you, our listeners, told us about your relationship with your pharmacies and the medications you rely on. This is Bonnie from Winfield, Kansas. Beginning of the year, I had to buy an inhaler, and it was over $250. Now that I have gone through the donut hole, uh, I just paid $42 for the exact same inhaler just the other day. Hi there. My name is Nancy Murphy from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. My daughter and I both have type 1 diabetes, so we both need insulin to stay alive. The price of insulin has gone up by the 300% over the past decade. Hi, my name is Lynn from Wakefield, Massachusetts. I've had an autoimmune disease that I was diagnosed with at the age of nine. Um, I'm 50 now, so I've taken medication all my life. Um, the price increases have weighed a lot on my husband and I. So he got a, he, luckily he found a job that had good health insurance, and the price of all the medications is just scary to think about without having health insurance and a good job. 
So what's the likelihood we'll see movement on legislation to lower costs? I think everyone feels that the House will probably pass something with the Democratic majority, but that does not at all mean this is something that could become law. That's Yasmin Aboudaleb. She's a health policy reporter for The Washington Post. I asked Yasmin to walk us through the legislation in the House and Senate. In the House, you've got this bill that would allow Medicare to negotiate the prices of 35 to 250 drugs. And um, it's drugs without competition and Obviously, some of them would be the drugs that impose the highest costs in Medicare. And a really sort of important provision of this bill is that some of those savings and some of those price reductions could eventually make their way to the commercial market. So to those of us with employer insurance or some form of private insurance. In the Senate, you've got the Republican majority where the idea of Medicare negotiating is a complete non-starter. But why is that? Well, Republicans say you can't impose price controls Mm. on drug prices, that you're going to hurt innovation that way. Mm. If the government is able to negotiate prices, you're going to take money away from pharmaceutical companies, and that's less money for R&D. And actually, there is a bit of validity to that argument because there is a congressional estimate of the House bill, which showed that it would result in a trillion dollars less over a decade to the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, maybe eight to 15 fewer drugs and innovation. The argument among many House Democrats right now is, well, it's worth it if it means such huge price reductions for seniors. Of course, the Republican argument is this is a drug that's going to or this is a bill that's going to stifle innovation. Right. So the Senate bill, what is different about it from the House bill? So most importantly, the Senate bill would not allow Medicare to negotiate, but it is still a pretty ambitious bill. It's a bipartisan bill. Uh, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley and Democratic Senator Ron Wyden wrote this bill together, and that would impose um, an inflation cap on drugs and Medicare. So it, it would say that pharmaceutical companies can't raise the prices of their drugs above the rate of inflation. And if they do do that, they have to pay back that money back to the government in the form of a rebate. And it would also impose an out-of-pocket cap for seniors at $3,000 a year. The House bill has a similar provision, except that that cap is $2,000 a year. And what are the odds that the Senate bill gets a, f- a vote in the on the full floor? So that's the big question right now. I think impeachment has changed the calculus quite a bit on this bill. The White House does support the bill and said they were going to try to whip Republican support. The bill did make it out of the Senate Finance Committee, but without a majority of Republican votes. So it's a bill that's already splitting the party. We know that Leader McConnell already doesn't like to take up bills that split his party, let alone a bill that would hurt the pharmaceutical industry and a bill that the pharmaceutical industry is lobbying extremely hard against, saying it's akin to price controls and people aren't going to have access to life-saving medications. It's an argument that quite a few Republicans in the Senate are parroting. So what is the solution then if you have the argument that it's it's stifling innovation, fewer drugs are available. What is the solution then that Republicans are offering as a way to lower the cost of drugs without putting these caps or controls on the overall cost? So I think everyone will say that drug prices are too high and we have to do something. Right. It's a matter of how ambitious 
various members of Congress are willing to be. So Republicans in the Senate have a couple of bills that sort of tackle some low-hanging fruit. So um, increasing access to cheaper generic medicines, um, trying to stop drug companies from filing hundreds of patents on a drug to prevent a new one and a cheaper one from coming to the market. So those sorts of provisions are on the table. But again, these are things that wouldn't make a serious dent. Or really, I don't think most Americans would realize that these things are going into effect because they wouldn't see a big difference when they do go to pay and pick up their drugs. Is it possible to find that there's like something in the middle there somewhere that that they can come to agreement? Or are we just in this place as we are with almost everything that both sides say, well, I'm not getting what I want, so we're not going to have a vote on anything. We're not going to see anything pass. Well, the thing about drug pricing is if you're going to tackle it in a serious way, it requires a lot of political capital, sustained focus, and a willingness to take on the pharmaceutical lobby, which is huge and well-funded and is very effective. And I don't know that you have that sort of dynamic in Congress right now, especially with an impeachment inquiry sucking up most of the oxygen in Washington, taking up most of the time of members. So... If you look at the Senate Finance Committee bill and you look at the House Democratic bill, there is a good bit of overlap. And if you there is definitely room for a compromise there. The bills do share some of the same provisions. Um, Even the House Democratic bill has a provision that's in line with something President Trump's administration is proposing. But the question is, one, is Leader McConnell willing to take up a health care bill? And I and there is a quite a bit of skepticism around that. He hasn't said one way or the other. And I think the general thinking right now is some elements might make it into a must-pass end-of-year government spending package. But I think at this point, most people aren't expecting something to pass both chambers that would be a standalone, comprehensive, sort of ambitious drug pricing bill. The other thing I have seen is, this was in the Wall Street Journal quoted the HHS secretary saying something akin to what you just said, which is, biggest stumbling block is we have a Democratic House or Republican Senate. But then he added, both sides have to park disputes and pass the 80% that they agree on and not focus on the 20% they disagree on. Is that a fair assessment of where things are? You think it's more, it's it's bigger than uh, 80%? I don't know that they agree on 80%. I think (laughs) that's, right. right. I think that's a bit generous. There are some fundamental differences between the two bills. But, you know, the surprising thing is when the House bill rolled out, which was after the Senate bill, was that there were a lot of elements that were in common. There was this idea of an out-of-pocket cap for seniors. And in the House bill, it was 2000 In the Senate bill, it was 3100 You imagine you could find some sort of middle ground there. Um, the House bill also had a provision to cap price increases to the rate of inflation. That's a huge element of the Senate finance bill. And that's uh, the element that I think would contribute to most of the savings projected by the Congressional Budget Office. So there's definitely room to do something. The problem is the dynamics and the challenges extend beyond just the written pieces of legislation. There are political dynamics. There's, of course, Leader McConnell, who I've mentioned a couple of times. I think he's the, the sort of the biggest potential hurdle to something getting done. And then you've got so many Senate Republicans who really don't want to vote on something like this. I think it could pass. But the question is, would Leader McConnell want to take up a bill that passes mostly with Democrats and a few Republicans and and one that he sort of fundamentally opposes? Yasmina Boudaleb is a health policy reporter for The Washington Post. For just the fourth time in our nation's history, Congress is now investigating whether to impeach a president of the United States. 
You didn't think we could go a whole episode without checking in on impeachment, did you? We are not here in some partisan exercise. We are here because the facts compel us to be here. It's not a fair process. It's not an open process. Every member should support allowing the American people to hear the facts for themselves. Democrats are trying to impeach the president because they are scared they cannot defeat him at the ballot box. It's about corruption. It's about the undermining of our elections. This is Soviet-style rules. It's been a busy week on Capitol Hill with the House voting along party lines to approve a resolution to establish that next phase of the impeachment inquiry. I asked Nick Fandos, congressional reporter at The New York Times, about what Thursday's vote means for the future of the impeachment inquiry and how Congress and the president are preparing their strategies for the next steps. At the most basic level, what this was about was adopting a set of rules and procedures that will govern the public, forthcoming public phase of this impeachment investigation. So far, you know, as we know, the depositions, the witness interviews have all been taking place behind closed doors. Now they're ready to start moving this into public hearings, into a public debate. And so they needed to change some House rules and kind of set the rules of the road to do that. But it also had another symbolic meaning at this point. It was, it was not a vote to authorize the impeachment inquiry. Democrats say the impeachment inquiry has been valid all along court has agreed with them, despite Republicans' claims that it wasn't. But this was basically um, an up or down vote to endorse this inquiry. And all but two House Democrats voted to uh, say, yes, we're behind this thing. We want to move forward. And every single House Republican voted against it. It seems to me that they are now fully on a path to bring an impeachment case against the president. Uh, And we'll have to see in the end whether they're successful or not. So Democrats believe that by bringing this into the open, they are going to get more public support for impeachment. That's their ambition. Um, You know, we have been doing quite a lot of reporting on what's happened in this closed chamber where they've been conducting the inquiry. But it's one thing to read secondhand accounts and to kind of hear lawmakers vaguely characterizing what's happening. I think that they think it's another thing to have some of the marquee witnesses they've been hearing from, people they think that are very credible uh, government servants, in front of television cameras, before a national audience, explaining what they saw happen. And that in this country, that you know, that's really the way that you get people's attention and can start to change minds. And we'll have to see in this hyper-partisan right. moment in the country with incredible exposure to Donald Trump and everything that he's done in the last three years, whether this set of hearings will make a difference. But it will certainly be an intense, concentrated effort over the next two months, basically. Well, and the president himself continues to tweet and say, read the transcript. The transcript absolves me. What do House Republicans think of that strategy? You know, privately, I think they're scratching their heads. I mean, it's an odd strategy because I think when you do read the transcript, most of those House Republicans would, would, you know, off the record agree with you. This is not a flattering picture for the president. I mean, they were really flummoxed when the White House volunteered the transcript more than a month ago into the open and said, look, this will end the case. Uh, because what it shows is President Trump doing the very thing that all these witnesses are saying, <laughs> saying he did and was pushing for, which is asking the president of Ukraine for an investigation into Joe Biden and his son by name and into a set of unsubstantiated theories about 
the Democrats collaborating with Ukraine during the 2016 election uh, and being responsible for the meddling that happened then rather than Russia. Nick, do we really think that the public phase of this and then potentially the, the actual vote on articles of impeachment happens before the end of the year? I think that Democratic leadership, Nancy Pelosi and the team around her, badly want to um, have this vote by the end of the year. So you can roughly start to see a schedule where when they come back from a congressional recess, which they're going on for the next week, when they come back after Veterans Day, they'll have several weeks of public hearings up until Thanksgiving. And then when they come back, the case would shift into the Judiciary Committee, which is where articles of impeachment are traditionally drafted and debated and, you know, we have these kind of, theoretically at least, weighty constitutional debates about what ought to happen based on the, the facts of this case. Um, and I think their hope is to have the Judiciary Committee do its work in December and report uh, articles of impeachment to the floor of the House and then have an up or down vote. It succeeds or it fails. I am struck by how closely, if that's the case, it mirrors 1998 where the vote, and I remember this very well because I was trying to do Christmas shopping and it was interrupted, of course, a lot. The vote on impeachment was December 19th. That, that's a plausible I think it certainly for, is. It's kind of eerie. Yeah. I mean, the big, but the interesting thing about it is the big difference is uh, in 1998, the Republicans were starting with a written and, and complete mm. report mm -hmm. at the beginning of the fall, the beginning of the process. Maybe it, maybe it won't be the 19th. Maybe it will be. We'll see if our Christmas plans are dashed. <laughs> John Bolton would be a very big deal to get, especially as a witness in the first place, but especially a public hearing with John Bolton. Do we think that is likely to happen? We will know by Monday. Mm. John Bolton, the president's former national security advisor, has come up again and again in testimony offered by other witnesses who worked with him. He suggested that he was very alarmed by actions of Rudy Giuliani, President Trump's personal lawyer, Gordon Sondland, his ambassador to the EU, all the kind of characters at the heart of this. And so, as you say, there's been this tremendous pressure to hear from him. We don't know. He is under request uh, to appear next week behind in private, closed doors. behind closed doors. And I think if he were to show up for that, then it's very likely that he would also be willing to show up in public. But what we've seen so far is that his lawyer, who's representing Bolton's deputy, didn't let the deputy go. Instead, they filed a lawsuit in federal court basically asking a judge to say, should I show up or not? Because the House wants me and the White House doesn't want me to go. What do I do? I think it's it's possible that, that Bolton could follow a similar course. And in that case, I certainly don't see the, the courts uh, or Bolton himself, you know, making that decision within the time frame that Democrats are talking about. Nick Fandos, thank you so much for coming in and walking us through all this. I was so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Nick Fandos is a congressional reporter for The New York Times. Here's my take. As we head into what is likely to be an intense few weeks of public hearings on impeachment, I was reminded of a story about the Nixon impeachment that someone close to me tells. So we called her. My oldest daughter, Amy, was in nursery school, so I had a lot of time to sit and watch what was going on. That's my mom. Here's her experience watching the Watergate hearings back in the summer of 1973. Number one, I was not a Nixon fan. So I was glued to the TV. She wasn't alone. According to Pew Research, 71% of Americans told Gallup they watched the hearings live. And I can remember each one of the people going 
and testifying, and as they kept saying, waiting for, waiting for, waiting for the smoking gun. It's also important to remember what a big deal this was. Long before reality TV or the West Wing or House of Cards, Americans for the first time were able to watch in real time how Washington and the White House worked. And those hearings had a very big impact on how Americans came to view the president. And then all of a sudden, Dean comes out and starts telling about the recordings. That was it. Now they had him, and I was very happy. Before the televised hearings began, just 31% of Americans thought Watergate was a serious matter. But at the end of the hearings, that had jumped more than 20 points to 53%. Opinions of the president also soured. Nixon's job approval ratings dropped 13 points over that summer. But almost 50 years later, the media and political landscape has changed a lot. The upcoming hearings will be public, but they will be viewed by many through their partisan sources of information, be it cable TV or social media, making it impossible to detach the hearings from politics and partisanship. There will be one official impeachment process, but many unofficial interpretations of it. That's all for us today. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.